friends, Romans, countrymen. What's up, y'all? It's the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, November 5th. 2018. We are living in the future for sure. Tomorrow's election day. Those of you in the U.S., go out and vote, please. Vote, 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 vote. Our nation is in transition, and we kind of need some to shake things up. So vote. That's how, Those of you who didn't vote, that's how we got into this mess. We won't get too far into a political rant, but just vote. Did I say vote tomorrow? Vote. Did I say vote? Vote. This week, we have rap legend Jesse Dangerously. Now, Jesse Dangerously is from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and this place was an interesting... I learned that it was a, a nexus point for Canada where a lot of African-American immigrants came up to Canada from the U.S., people who brought a lot of culture and tapes and, and records and influence from New York radio brought it up to Halifax and it became like a hotbed of Canadian hip hop. And it gave birth to artists like Buck 65, who was a Canadian rapper who was on Warner Brothers for a second, but he was also popular on the indie labels. Anticon signed him like he was a very eclectic guy. He had a radio show. I think he still does. He and Jesse were friends and Jesse talks about how he was a big influence on him. He talks about the Backburner crew. We talk about all the years knowing each other, his touring experience in the U.S. And Jesse's just like a really fresh, interesting guy. His album Danger Grove is out. So please check that out. We'll listen to a song at the end, the posse cut. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporter. Shout out to Mike, Carlo, and Patrick. Shout out to some of the new ones. Lane Atkins, Vanessa, and Dave Underwood. Shout out to Dave especially. I played a show in New Hampshire and he and his friend picked me up at the airport. They took me to the arcade. They hung out with me. I got to kick it with his family and he helped like he helped that show happen. So thank you for your support, Dave. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Oh, okay. I've got more Narnia raps coming. I've got the Prince Caspian song and then the silver chair coming. And basically life is good. I start tour this Friday in Cleveland with I Fight Dragons. So nerdcoretour.com will be around the East Coast and kind of in the Midwest. Don't miss it. Thank you all for your love and support. Uh, thanks to Jesse. This interview was really cool because sometimes I'll do an interview with someone and they'll just talk and I'll go like, oh, so it's like this. And they'll talk for 10 minutes. Oh, it's like that. They'll talk. You know, it's fine. That's fine. That's the nature of podcasting. It's a conversation. And I want these people, to, I want to hear about their stories. But this with Jesse felt like a real conversation, you know, like shout out to him. He's got a warm heart. He's very funny. He's very dope. And uh, he's one of those rappers, rappers, like Rappers know Jesse Dangerously because he's been doing it so long because technically he's super dope. And I feel like he's one pop song away from blowing us all out of the water and outselling Logic. And you know what I mean? Like he's one of those guys who's going to have his mainstream moment soon. And I'm lucky I got to talk to him before that happened. Hopefully afterwards we'll still be friends and uh, he won't block me from his phone as he threatens to have done on this song, on this podcast. I'm playing. He doesn't. But you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Okay. Tune in. Stay tuned. And thank you all for listening. This is the MC Lars Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the MC Lars Podcast. We have a very special guest. I wanted to start with a quote. I wanted to start with a quote. The truth is, I'm kicking every other rapper like me's ass up and down the boardwalk. I only like one and will say his name quite happily. Jesse Dangerously. He's good. The rest suck. That's hard to say, and I haven't said it before because some of these people are my fans. Some are my friends. Who said this? What's the context, G? Can we have a call-in? Can we have a call-in show and see? Yeah, no, it's uh, that, was, uh, that was Christopher Ward, uh, perhaps known better as MC Chris or 
you know, famous voice actor and animator uh, who's got a little bit of a side project uh, rapping. Now, this is some time ago. It might... I can't think of what, like, it's more than 10 years ago he said that, but it was very sweet, even if it was dramatically unkind to anyone who isn't me. Um, And I've always felt really good about it. I remember I read this article. It was on, like, one of the rhyme torrents or something, and I I read the quote, and I was like, what the, who is this Jesse Dangerously? Because I'd heard your name, and I knew you worked with Damien, and it was like this, this was like having a rapper that we all respected or, or, or respect, like be like, this is the one good nerdcore rapper. <laughs> we were like, I was like, okay. And then I started listening to your stuff and like searching for whatever I could find. And I love that you had a good flow, that you were funny, but you also had a, a, a political or consciousness that wasn't in a lot of the nerdcore stuff. And like, you've been doing this so much longer than pr- pretty much all of us basically. Right. <laughs> A little bit. It seemed longer at the time. Now we're getting to a point where, like, we've all been doing it so long that the couple of years difference at the beginning doesn't make as big of a difference. I want to say this about the MC Chris quote, though. Yeah. While I did feel, like, warmed by it and touched, I never completely agreed. Like, that's not how I saw, even at my most cynical about Nerdcore, like, I felt like there's a moral truth to it, but it's not technically true. <laughs> like, even uh, even if I big myself up the most, like, there's a lot of great, there's always been super good rappers who were participating in Nerdcore, um, even back then. <laughs> and, and now more than ever. Have you ever seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Sure have. Scared the hell out of me. You know the scene where he goes to the Warner Brothers lot? Basically, it's the whole MacGuffin of the story is he's trying to get his bike, which is like the best bike in the mm. world. So he finds it. He sees it. and It's in a movie. It's being shot in this movie. And he sees a promo for the movie on TV. So he goes to Warner Brothers Studios and he's stealing the bike. And there's a scene where he's there's like Godzilla's chasing him, Santa Claus, like a boat from a beach scene. Uh, that's on wheels and twisted sister are doing a music video for their see no evil song and the he <laughs> comes on his bike and then the boat crashes into the car and everyone scatters and i always felt like that was like a metaphor for your and my friendship because like it's a very quick part of the movie but it's very funny and it's a great like crossover moment that people remember <laughs> and it's like the meeting of two very different worlds but in a way it like was a very 80s very funny scene so i wanted to share that story because i'd seen that movie like semi-recently and i thought that's just like jesse and me (laughs) like watching the movie you thought hey you know who this reminds me of yeah but i want to know though i can't figure out your twisted sister and i'm peewee right i was trying to figure yeah i was gonna ask you which who is who i gotta be peewee because i used to wear the necktie all the time (laughs) the bow tie oh yeah yeah well i actually i never really wore a bow tie much but still uh, yeah I dressed up. When we first met, we first collaborated on my Robot Kills record, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first time we did something together. But we hadn't met IRL, had we? No, but I think we had like a friendly online relationship. I, I don't remember like where we encountered each other, just social media. What did they have for social media in 2008? I mean, we had MySpace, I guess, but I think Damien probably <laughs> gave me your email. Right. That's probably what happened. And I, I probably sent you an effusive like fan email hoping that you would read it N- not that always works <laughs> that always works <laughs> to all the listeners out there effusive fan emails that'll get me every time and then we met at south by and we had so much fun and i think we performed our song there right mm-hmm. they- oh i have a vivid memory of uh you and me huddled in an alley in austin texas 
like practicing the song over and over again yeah to do it perform it for the first time and I remember a guy came by and was like, yo, Jesse, you're so dope. That so, sounds so dope, dog. <laughs> we were like, some kid, some like young hip hip hop head. He was like, yo, dog. Strangers. Strangers. Too. Hearing us yeah. flow in the alleyway. Yeah, I think they were probably lifelong fans from then on. <laughs> you know, if, if those kids are listening now, I'd love to see what you've grown up into. I think they were going to go see Mims or something like that. <laughs> They're on- Man, why is he hot? No one ever explained that you to You know, me. I just learned he, he just uh, developed an app. That helps producers find rappers. He's going into the tech sector now. Oh, man. If there's one thing, producers have enough rappers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? I think rappers have enough beats. It's, it's, it's a glut on both sides of the market. So sifting through it is a hard part. I did an interview with the Canadian rapper named Baba Brinkman. And he, we talked about this thing, how like hip hop, he talked about how he's raps about evolution and how hip hop is very evolutionary in that like you survive if you can keep the audience attention and, mm-hmm. and like y- you have to hip hop is very Darwinian that you have to evolve and like constantly be adapting. And it was very interesting, like metaphor for it. Right. Because like, if you are able to, it's always, there's more rappers and more music than there are people who want to listen to it. That's yeah. <laughs> so it's like a, co- a competition for resources. Like, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I remember even back in like, you know, having been doing this for such a long time, as you mentioned, I remember even in the early 2000s starting to notice like, well, there's a lot of rappers in the audience at these rap shows. And like they'd be like the the tide tilting from uh, consumers to like like people being there strictly because they want to put it in and like bring it into their heads uh, versus people who are like also making it and want to like build a network. And um, I don't know if shows have ever like on an indie level have ever really recovered from like the democratization of music. Like we're all making it. If we love it enough, we're probably making it. And it's hard to get people who are super enthusiastic, uh, who aren't also themselves just trying to trade CDs with you. Well, and that was what I remember Lord Grunge from Grand Buffet said something like nowadays back, this was like 15 years ago. Anyone who goes to a rap show now is going cause they want to get on. <laughs> they don't want to, yeah, they want yeah. to, they want to be on for that cipher at the, at, at the end. More or less had a song, uh, right, like on the album from before he joined Backburner, I think in 2003 on uh, uh, I Only Stop for the Red Ants, he had a song called Yo, Let My Boy Rap. <laughs> and that's like, it's from all of his experience, like playing shows in Toronto and like being on stage and having somebody like come up to him and like gesture like, yo, give me the mic. Yo, my boy's really good at rapping. It's like, I'm doing a set. <laughs> like, you paid to see me. Your boy can't rap. If your boy wants to rap, he or she can <laughs> Or I guess yeah. they can start their own label or or put out their own music, or yeah. find their niche within a subgenre. And that's why you know, as much as I've had a off and on hot and cold relationship with nerdcore, I think in nerdcore though there are it's the one genre that I've existed in where there are fans who aren't necessarily. There are a lot of nerdcore rappers who are mm. fans, but there are fans who like buy the merch, who care, who aren't trying to like put out records, which is like in a way refreshing. Other than like the yeah. the the you know the Def Jux rhyme sayers world that you and I grew up on loving Anticon world. Mm. There's a more receptive audience, I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, that's a really good point. That maybe that's what like always kept us crawling back. Uh, also, like. I mean, the, the scene itself, and I do think of it as more of a social scene or like a, an art scene than a genre per se, because there's so much different sounds represented in it. But um, it's been through so many like phases socially, like um, when like 
more like better and worse uh, personalities have had more sway and in the in the in the social ecosphere of of nerdcore and uh, like lately I think it's so good now and like there are a lot of fans but even the artists are like more exciting than ever like there's a large number of people who are identifying as nerdcore who are just like respectful of hip-hop you know and like they're not it's not all just like like the the whiteness of nerdcore has kind of like diminished mm-hmm. over the years which was always kind of like a, an uncomfortable aspect of it like like the deliberate whiteness like the fact that it was conceived of as like well we're not like real rappers because we're white and therefore normal you know like that's not like the npc collective and people like have really like spread the idea of like well that maybe that's not like the default human you know it's not uh what nerdiness is for everybody yeah, and that, I think it's indicative of the uh, cu- the cultural shift and the mainstreaming of nerd culture, but also the fact that more people of different backgrounds are empowered. It's more of a fact that the shift of, of what a nerd is has changed. What do you think? I've always I've always been resistant to defining nerds um, based on like a, a specific group of interests, um, and I've always thought of and like you know this is like maybe my trauma speaking, but like I think of a nerd as like someone who gets beat up like you're kind no matter what you're into if people can bully you like that's that's way been a much bigger factor in my concept of nerdiness than than a specific set of interests like I grew up being really into like British comedy and uh Dungeons and Dragons and comic books and video games and like all the stuff that that also like that goes along with uh nerd by consumerism but like Moreover, like I, uh, I would, I was like self-conscious in public, or like I, uh, I wasn't like I didn't have physical prowess, and I got beat up a lot, and like that's I think what really defined it as a uh, a character, because like you can be like into sports and like speak really uh, easily to people, and also enjoy uh, you know trading card games, and no one, you're not a nerd really, like. It's it's more like the social ostracism that kind of makes for uh, character building. Yeah. Sorry, I'm rambling. See, that's and that's my nerdiness. I'm thinking faster than I can talk. Well, no, I mean, and that's like that's that's always been um, what has been cool about our shows is that people feel like, especially at South by Southwest, it's always the show where people. It's the show you don't have to be cool to go to. That's why Nardwar would show up and like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's the show that's never trendy. There's no one on there who's like, I don't know. It's never like the the dope thing to see. It's always like when they announce it, it's like, well, this is happening as it does every year. So check out these <laughs> guys because they're still here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nardwar ran up on Backburner after... Like when there was a bunch of us down there, uh, he saw us eating tiny burgers from across the street and we all saw his bobble hat. And we were like, yo, that's Nardwar. Hey, Nardwar. And he turned around and he was like, oh, hey, guys. And then he recognized Timbuktu and he went, that's Timbuktu. And he ran over and he was so excited and he wanted to explain to us that he had seen the Nerdcore show because he tried to get into the Cool Kids show and it was full. So he went to Nerdcore instead and he thought that was really poignant. That couldn't be more literal. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about the art and legacy and journey of one Jesse Dangerously. You are part of the Backburner crew, which is at this point, what, 13, 12, 
12 people? I uh, I don't even try to count anymore. Yeah. It's like it's some it's in the teens. All right. Kind of teens. like your career. No, your career is in the 20s now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of years. <laughs> A bunch of teens pushing 40. That's funny. How did you how did that thing come about if you don't mind talking about it? Yeah, I'll try and give the uh, least self self-indulgent sort of quick answer possible. I, from my perspective, I was involved in the Halifax hip hop scene as a big, big fan and like just starting to put out cassette tapes in the late 90s. You grew up in Halifax, right? Halifax, Nova Scotia, which had a really strong hip hop scene uh, and like a sort of a, a, a wide variety of hip hop scene, uh, like some really indie boundary pushing stuff and some really traditional, like fun, groovy stuff. And it all kind of overlapped. And we were just I don't know. It's like it's it's kind of isolated from the world uh, physically. It was a point of entry for uh, for black uh, immigrants like coming from the U.S. Like the end of the Underground Railroad and a lot of uh, so there's a, there was also a strong um, indigenous black community in uh, in Nova Scotia, and because of that, like hip hop like f- spread through family members like on tapes and stuff from New York and like made it up to Halifax maybe uh, in a different way from the rest of Canada. Like I'm sure other like more densely populated and even more diverse areas of Canada got it in their own way. Yeah. But um, being on the East coast, that was kind of how it came up to us. And then, so it sort of spread through youth and like getting on uh, community radio and stuff. So there was a real hotbed of hip hop in Halifax that I was lucky to grow up surrounded by. And, uh, and so there were a lot of other sort of enthusiastic kids, my age and uh, in the nineties and, there were some people like a few years older who were like making records and we were all like we, there was a big fans of them and the DJs and we would, uh, people my age would kind of start to recognize each other at the shows. Like we'd be at all the other shows and, um, basically like kills and fester and Dexter Doolittle who are three founding members of what became Backburner, approached me. Uh, they knew I had a tape out with Ginzu and uh, the Sentinels tape and they, um, They'd seen it in the record store, and they were working on a tape, and we both made beats for this guy, Josh Martinez, who went on to big things. Anticon signed him, right? Yeah, briefly. Yeah. Uh, yeah he's bounced around on a lot of different uh, indie labels. He's most really just d- doing his thing. And wasn't Buck 65 from Halifax, or is that wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, and he was, like, my direct mentor. Like, he had the radio show that we all, like, tuned into – um, to like learn what was going on in the world of hip hop in between like 1990 and 96, I think is when the show ended. Yeah. And, uh, and like that was our lifeline. And it like he had a really strong like traditionalist hip hop ethos, but also um, avant garde. So that really influenced a lot of the people who listened to it. So there was a lot of like minds in the city who, um, you know, were about my age, like between Generation X and Millennial. And, uh, and some of us, you know, met. Some of them were going to King's College. That's what uh, Fess and, and Kills were going to. And, uh, you know, they discovered they had interest in music production. Uh, Kills was more kind of like a jazz and reggae bassist. But uh, through the jazz angle, we sucked him into producing. And now he's like one of the most in-demand producers and beat makers in Canada. Um, but back then, like, we would just meet in Kills' apartment. It was those guys, uh, MC Frank Deluxe, Thesis Sahib, who was also like a legendary graffiti writer uh, across the country, and um, other friends, like some of whom are still rapping, some of whom aren't. And we just like were, we found a community uh, after sort of working in our own separate cocoons for a while, like just 
Because, like, when the radio is your lifeline and you're a little bit too young to, like, be going to a lot of shows, you know, you start completely alone. And then when you find your community, it was really motivating. And, uh, and we started trying to show off and impress each other. And, like, we'd show off by showing each other our rare records and uh, the breaks that we found and the rhymes that we came up with. And we'd freestyle together. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of Backburner was just this, like, camaraderie. And it grew over years as we toured um, across Canada, uh, well, across the, the middle to the east of Canada. Uh, we picked up Toolshed, which was a group of three people in London, Ontario, uh, that Thesis Sahib was down with, because that was where he was originally from. And that's Timbuktu and Chokulis and Saibo. And they all became, like, really central to the group. And more or less was in Toronto. And, like, Word Burglar came in through me, because he was just selling comic books. And we would just always talk about rap and he had his own crew called the Dregs of Society in junior high, but like they were all just like kids. And he was the one who was like really serious about actually rapping. And he would kind of organize them around him to freestyle and like make these tapes and pass them around. And my cousin Jill was in that crew and uh, some other some other folks who just straight up don't rap. But um, that when those kids like kind of fizzled and didn't want to freestyle anymore, he was adrift and like looking for people to rap with. I pulled him into Backburner. He brought Beat Mason. Like, it was just this, like, spread like a cult, you know? We just <laughs> made friends, introduced the friends. And, like, over the years, it's, it's people have come and gone because there is kind of a – the only, like, organizing ethos to it is, like, super-duper loving hip-hop. And, like, that's, that's like, the, the foundation. is like we can't even, like, click unless somebody has – an uncomfortable love of hip hop that's followed them for their whole life. Right. And then also, uh, where there's just a lot of love in the crew. And that's what has sort of people who can vibe with a ton of affection, especially like homosocial, like man on man affection have been, have been able to like endure touring and playing shows with us. And then, Everybody else has kind of gone and started a family. <laughs> and that's always like the interesting, the juncture, the path, right? Like, yeah. like when I interviewed Frontalot, he talked about how he said he probably will never have kids, but his albums are like his kids. You know what I mean? Hmm. <laughs> I wanted to talk about how you linked with Frontalot in the first place and how you, how, how you then, being a central member of this Canadian crew, linked internationally, I guess you could say, with the Nerdcore movement. I uh, I owe it all to my uh, my junior high friend who was a rave DJ, uh, DJ Sun Kid. We lived together in 2001, and he was a really big compressor fan, and he was like more up on like what was going on all over the internet. And compressor was like a comedy uh, industrial project that I think Drew from Toothpaste for Dinner did, if uh, if I'm remembering correctly, and it was just like. Rammstein, I don't know, it was like loud, distorted sampled beats and a fake German accent shouting things like C is for cookie <laughs> and like really goofy stuff. And I guess like Frontalot was doing song fight and stuff in those days and they linked up as to internet phenomena. Um, and I'd already heard MC Stephen Hawking because that was like, you know, if you were on the internet, there's like famous on the internet. Yeah. So uh, my, my, my roommate, was like, I don't know if you're going to think this sucks, but there's a guy rapping on the Compressor song that just came out. And uh, like, and I'm, I'm like uh, a hard audience. I'm like... What was the song, though? I'm like, 
The song was Rappers We Crush. I've never heard that. I got to look that up. It's so good. Yeah, I'm going to look that up. I, uh, I'm a hard audience, especially for like joke rap. Because even though like the first music I liked was Weird Al, like I think I take hip hop so seriously. I'm like, the joke can never be like, I'm rapping. Isn't rap's dumb, right? And what I was so excited about when I heard it was it was a guy being funny through the medium of hip hop, but like just rapping good. And it reminded me immediately of Fresh Prince, which was the first hip hop I'd ever heard and that like caught me and like made me excited um, because it was like storytelling. It was really like loose and conversational. I just adored it. Like I adored the first verse I ever heard from Damien and I don't like I Alta Vista him or something. You know, I, uh, I Yahoo searched him. Uh, I looked for info about him and I found his valued suckers program. That was like his early website because, of course, he's a web pioneer. And I didn't I didn't send money and join the Valued Suckers program. I uh, I sent him a fawning fan email, which like, again, that works with us. I asked for his address so I could send him a couple of my CDs because I that was how I was making introducing myself to everybody in those days. Like I had two uh, albums that were um burned a CD. The compressor guy just was like, hey, check this out. You might like this. Or was he like, you should work with this guy? My friend, who was a compressor fan, ah. uh, who showed me the song, was just like, I don't know if you're going to think this dumb. Like, we did a radio show together, so we were always showing each other songs, but we had completely different tastes in music. Yeah. He was really into Goa Trance and Queensryche, and, uh, and I was like, hip-hop and jazz. I guess we... We, could, we got together on jazz a bit. He couldn't even tell if rap was good or bad. So he thought I might think it was bad because it was like supposed to be funny as a rap, but it was actually amazing. That's awesome. So it was just like you trusted his taste as someone who had interesting interesting selections, and he trusted your taste as like a curator and, and uh, having like high standards of good rap. So you both were like informing each other's playlists or whatever. Yeah, even though we like couldn't we couldn't even see eye to eye on whether we liked it, but we were interested in whether the other person would like so it. So you okay, so you sent Damien CDs, you hit him you sent him an email. I hit him up, I sent him a CD and uh, I guess I just had one CD at the time. And uh, he he received it very graciously and he invited me to join the Valued Suckers program pro bono. I guess my CD was the entry hey. fee. I don't know if I'm the only person who bought my way into the Valued Suckers program with music, but it's a feather in my cap. It's worth at least two dollars in in that currency. And that was like his Patreon before Patreon. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Back in nineteen seventy four. And I remember showing up showing up and immediately telling like three people some things they said were racist and just really making myself popular right off the bat. So there was like a forum. Oh yeah, it was a it was a private forum. That was what the Valued Suckers program was. It was a uh, uh, a message board because this was like the the golden era of message boards um, on their own specific sites. You know, every person had every individual, every brand, every web presence certainly had their own devoted message board. And I would spend my days like going to the Anticon message board, going to the Sage Francis message board, going to the Brunching Shuttlecocks web comedy message board, and then like the MC Front A Lot message board before it all got consolidated into the nightmare hell of social media. I had one, but at a certain point it became, it took up all day to like fight the Russian, the spam, you know, all the, all the people <laughs> who would just fake accounts, you know, it got like, I think yeah. they all got overwhelmed by that in conjunction with the rise of social media. Do you agree? Like that kind of, that was, I think like UBB had some pretty good tools for like automatically fighting spam, but spam also evolved. 
And plus, you know, who knows? Maybe Zuckerberg like took them all down. You know, maybe he <laughs> he was paying the spam bots in the first place to make sure that there was room for Facebook to evolve um, and take everyone's attention away forever. But um, yeah, so the MC Front a lot message board was a really nice place. Um, and it was just a bunch of enthusiasts and people who were into him. And MC Stephen Hawking was a member. And really quickly, I just sort of like ingratiated myself. Like, I don't know. I was a big fan of Front. So I was saying like friendly things to him. And like, uh, I was like checking out all of the songs he was posting. And, um, and he and Hawking talked about doing a track together, Nerdcore Rising. Just sort of described it to each other on the forum. Like, wouldn't it be funny? If we did a song about how nerd rap is taking over and I just like popped into the thread and I was like, yeah, I'd be on that. Uh, and like snuck my way in and they very graciously uh, permitted me to be on there. These are like two titans of internet rap. And I, I, I did okay on mp3.com. You know, I had a few, I had a few hits to my mp3.com page, but like, not like these folks. Um, so it was really nice of them to involve me. Um, but were you, weren't you also like wearing a tie on stage and stuff too? So you kind of look like Frontalot's brother. Like he didn't have a live show yet uh-huh. that I know of. So I he I might have got the tie from me. Is all I'm saying. Wow. Uh, I was always wearing a tie back in those days. I always had like blue collar jobs. Well, that, not even blue collar. Like that's even that's too prestigious. I always had like just like minimum wage jobs, and uh, I never had a job that I would have to dress up for. So, like, when I rapped uh, in the early days, I was like, I want to dress up for this, you know? I want to, like, treat this, like, professional. Yeah. Um, and uh, that lasted for a while, but it eventually it's just too sweaty. And <laughs> too sweaty to wear. Do you think Michael stage. Kill got his suit stage persona from you? I'll go on record and say that Michael Kill has, like, directly stolen everything he's ever done from me. Like, uh our, our our friendly antagonism knows no bounds, and I'll just accuse him straight up of like he bit every rhyme you've ever liked. He bit from me every beat he made. He stole those records from me, and definitely like he never even saw a necktie in his life until I was on stage. And that's just the truth of it. Michael Kill, I'm coming for you. I love him so much. Basically, the cool thing is we've all built these weird friendships across the planet that have been fostered in part by festivals like South by Southwest. You've toured Canada and you've toured the U.S. and you've opened for MC Chris like across the United States. Yeah, that was so fortunate for me. That was so nice of him <laughs> to do for me. Well, okay, so let's talk about how you got from being a guest rapper on the Nerdcore Rising to your mm-hmm. international touring career. It was great timing. It was incredible timing because right, like Nerdcore Rising, the Front a Lot album, he just publicized it so well, and uh, he. Like, like he was, I was just listening to your interview with him, and he was talking about how magazines would write about it at the time and how easy it was to write about. And that made a lot of sense. I only found out later that, like, my name was mentioned in Rolling Stone magazine just because of my connection to MC Front a lot, like, at that time, in 2005 wow. or whatever. And, uh, and so, like, all of my fans, like, globally, uh, my fans can be really directly traced to spreading through MC front a lot and uh and then later MC Chris but like if not for that initial like rush of publicity it was it was a perfect timing stuff wasn't so centralized with digital distribution so I had my uh my albums up on CD baby um before like there was even Bandcamp exactly but like they were they were taking physical orders for me and because 
all these consumers and like collectors were really getting into front a lot and seeing, okay, what else is out there? Um, I would come up really early because I'm actually on his album, and they were buying tons of copies of my 2005 uh, album. For me, tons. Like, I sold out one 1,000 pressing, and I still have 300 copies left in the second 1,000 pressing uh, that I did right after because I was like, so, so excited about how fast it was uh, selling. But, um, yeah, a- anybody who knows me in the States, it's because of that, uh, because of the Front A Lot song, and then because Chris heard me through that, I assume, he invited me uh, to, to tour with him and uh, put me on one of his records also, and also being on your record. Um, like all of those nerdcore things are the only reason I have fans in the States at all. And uh, also the fact that your show is very, very unique and confrontational and fun and very different and un- unapologetic. And I think your live show, I mean, it translates, right? If you're, if you're known on records or have like a social media buzz, it doesn't, don't really have longevity if your show's not interesting. Like, how did you first think about how you would put your show together? And like, can you describe a little bit for anyone who hasn't seen you yet? It's a very passionate show, and that's always been up front. And at first, it was just like, I'm going to deliver my lyrics as passionately as possible. And like for the first few years, that kind of didn't manifest in the greatest show. It was like I was uh, over-projecting. You know, I was like almost screaming on stage. Um, and uh, I didn't have any control uh, over like the, the, the pitch or timbre of my voice. So when there were singing parts, they would come out like belted out and uh anyway it was just like it was too much and just playing a lot of shows in the first few years especially getting to tour and that became like rap camp um i uh i got more focused with like trying to deliver my vocals which i put a ton of thought into right into constructing them and like what the words are and how they go i was like okay i want to actually deliver them tight and i want to really connect with people so i started focusing on eye contact and that would go with songs that were very sincere or songs that were confrontational too um like i'd pick people in the audience and they would be the recipients of the song so that i wasn't just like i don't know like one of the early things to learn on stage is like you can't just disappear into yourself as a vocalist like you have to find that connection uh well depending on i mean shoegaze you can just gaze at your shoes but so inten- I was seeking intensity and I was seeking connections so that people would like remember what was happening and like internalize what I was trying to externalize. And um, so I was really looking for attention and that started to manifest in looking a certain way. And I, I um, so I started dressing up in the first few years, but then I also started um, doing stunts and like they were always really uh, spur of the moment, but I just wanted to like, if I felt like, attention was waning or if I felt like I'd take it to another level I started climbing on stuff and uh, if I was playing a show with a big stage I'd just find a high place to stand uh, and keep rapping as fast as I could like while I was climbing a speaker or, or like balancing on a table that looked like it was about to break and I had some like real like near-death experiences just trying to like keep everybody's eyes on me and like dingy shows i remember just finding a noose at a club in london ontario (laughs) that had been like strung over one of the rafters and like i was right after the local popular group um and i was definitely about to become mc smoke break um 
and it, people were just like headed out the door. So I grabbed the noose and like I was doing the song Get Fresh, I remember. And I just like put it around my neck and was pulling the other end of it. And like it was scary. Like I was doing like this goofy, fun song about being good at rap. Um, but it was like cutting off my voice. It was argh, getting all like growly and people like stopped and stared and they stayed with me for the rest of the show. And later I was like, if I slipped, I really would have hurt myself. Like that was a bad idea, but it was really spur of the moment. So I try to find like less dangerous ways of like, Jesse dangerously of, um, keeping the eyes on me. And, uh, at some point I started taking my pants off. It was pants first that I was taking my pants off at shows. And I think, uh, like, I don't know if there was, like, a lyrical thing the first time. I thought it, like, went with a funny line or something. But then I – and then I saw some photos of that, and I was like, that looks weird. That's a little bit aggressive. I don't want to look like uh, – I don't want to look like that. Like, I don't know, just a guy with his pants off in a crowd of people. Uh, everybody there needs to, like, sign a waiver first or something. It's, it's, it's not friendly. So the shirt started coming off. And that the first time was because I was changing shirts because I was on stage. I'd gone up in a T-shirt, and I wanted to wear my shirt and tie. So I just – the DJ was going and I was like, everybody don't look. And I uh, changed my shirt on stage. And then I just kept doing different variations of that that had me shirtless on stage. And that got such a strange reaction that it really, my show stopped be like, it stopped being about like, I was exploring taking my shirt off on stage for, for the impact it had on me and what people would say to me after. And I was like studying the reaction to like a fat person, uh, you know, acting sexy or a fat person just like presenting their body even neutrally. And, you know, people would come up to me after and they'd either say something super positive or something that was intended positive that was like, that felt amazing. Like I seeing you up there, nobody's ever done that at a show I've been at. That was great. Or they'd say like, I don't think we really need to see all that. What are you trying to prove? And like that made me want to do it more. I'm like, well, it's just a, a body. Like, I didn't ask you to come to my show, personally. And uh, and then the sort of the in-between thing where people are like, wow, it's really brave. Really, really brave. You're so brave. And I'm like, if you say I'm brave one more time, I'm going to start to feel like I look really weird. <laughs> but That's it. And yeah. that's like... That's condescending. <laughs> that's very condescending in a way. Yeah, and it wasn't intended. Like, I think they were just, like, trying to figure out what they thought of it. Um, and so that felt started to feel kind of activist. And then that blended into my more personal and revealing songs. Uh, and on the MC Chris tour, it, it got when I was with Tribe One and, uh, and Dr. Awkward as the opening acts, it became down to a science because we played 50 shows, 52 shows in 60 days. And it was all developing over time. And like I started off doing some things during the set that, that didn't get a reaction. So I stopped doing them. Or, uh, or like tried to refine them so that they would get a reaction. And with the shirt, it would always come off when Tribe One and I were about to do or were like really getting into um, our song, The Biggest Losers, which is just a, about like showing off how fast and intense we can rap. And so it would come off in like a moment of triumph. And I would always follow it up with my two most vulnerable personal songs about like gender and body image and stuff. And I'd do those with my shirt still off. And I was deliberately like pulling the audience into one frame of mind and like carrying them through another one. And it, um, I don't always do that. You know, like there's shows where I just keep my shirt on the whole time and I just have a, I'm just there for a, a laugh or whatever. And, uh, and I don't try and like bear it all. But like, yeah, over the years I've been developing, like, what can I do to like bring it home? You know, if I'm saying something really personal and like 
you know, people might not just relate to it on its face. It's like, what are some storytelling tactics or like some emotionally manipulative things I can do that'll that'll take them with me? Yeah, that's good. And it's like as you become more seasoned, you get this toolbox of things that work might work for some shows or might not work for other shows. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah, for me, I always try like there's things I do every show that I, you know, like I bring out the Raven puppet. I, I, I'll do the ska mm. song, but I always, I always don't want it to become like boring. You know what I mean? And I think that that's yeah. what makes it that that's, that's the challenge, right? Especially when you're on like a, a long tour like that, you, I mean, but then you get the, then you get the benefit of really refining it and, mm-hmm. and building like collaborations with people. My, my technique is always, it's kind of different than yours. Like I tried, I just stare at the back wall. I can't make con- eye contact with anyone, and that and that you know what, you know what that allows me to do is like if it's not a super well attended show, it allows me to stare mm. at the back wall and pretend there are a thousand people there, and that right you give it the same level. Yeah, I do that one too. I'm gonna like I, the eye contact was like a learning process, but depending on the song and depending on the room, I can't always look people in the eye. Yeah, especially if I'm doing like a really mean like I'm dope and you're whack song. <laughs> like nobody here is whack. I can't address that to the people in the room. I, I started doing eye contact when I started doing like uh, songs with gay content and like queer content um, or really early in my career when like I wasn't really identifying any particular way, but I knew that I had people in the room who were going to react badly to like queer content. And then I would find mm. them and I would stare them in the eye and I would rap the whole song to them. And like there's footage uh, on YouTube now, I think, uh, of a show in 2000 eight maybe where I somebody was heckling me and he was heckling me all night like right before this super intense I'm dope and you're whack song and then I got really angry and I singled him out and I wrapped the whole song in his face um and after after the show he was really polite (laughs) but uh but yeah like in other types of shows like I'll find a point to look at because I also you and I have ADD we both do right right and um, I'm easily distracted and stuff like I spoonerize words and I can really lose track of my raps easily, um, no matter how hard I practice them, which is never as hard as it could be also. But um, so I need to find like a fixed point where nothing will change. And sometimes that's like eye contact and that'll like carry me through. But if like if there's a lot of words in the room or like people are distracted or they're doing something, I do just need to find like a light to stare into. Or something that just damage my cornea. Like, you know, my pet peeve, like at this point, is I don't care if it's not a sold out show, and I don't care if there's not many people there. But I really, really, really care when they're talking, and when they're not even <laughs> like I like you said, like MC Smoke Break, like when it's not a when they could not care less. You know, like I did a tour a few years ago where I was rapping between songs on a like between bands on like a bigger pop punk tour. And right. that is more, even if there's a huge crowd, it's, it's when they don't care and they're not watching that sucks. And I think that like, it does, you have to just deliver and not worry about it. Right. Yeah. It's hard <laughs> to rise above it, but like I, there's a level, like I want to be forgiving of it because everybody's in a space for a different reason. Right. And like, I just by showing up, I haven't earned their devotion, but like, but it's still like it's um, I remember in Cleveland one time uh, playing a show with Adam Warrock and Michael Kill and probably Tribe One. And uh, I remember my whole shtick just not working like 
everything I did to like, okay, well, this will get him. Okay, well, this will uh-huh. get him. And I just remember being on stage, no shirt, talking about personal stuff over this raging din of people like discussing video games or something. And I'm sorry, Jesse. No, it sucked. But like, I guess there's a, there's a lesson in there. And the lesson isn't just like Cleveland is whack because I played there again and it was great. But uh, that night I wasn't on or something like whatever my tricks couldn't carry it and but also like they chose to go out they paid cover they're there for a reason that's theirs and i just hope that like i don't know like don't stand in the front row and shout but it's okay if you want to go out with your friends and talk it just i wish i was more interesting well and and that's the thing you can't let it affect your performance i'm sure you were like relentless in being doing the best you could and finishing strong like there's nothing worse than if your crowd's not receptive being like, well, then you guys suck. I'm going to do a whack job. <laughs> oh, God. Yo, and what's up with, like, I've never felt good about, like, put your motherfucking hands in the air. What's wrong with you? Like, it's, like make me. Or when rapper goes, are you, are you guys tired? Well, we're tired of buying yeah. tickets to see you now, apparently. Like, <laughs> like, or make some noise when I'm like, I'll make some noise when you do something. Like, yeah, right. Like, I'm very receptive. Yeah. Like, I don't. But I'm not gonna cheer for make noise. I mean, say it once. It's it's a sh- it's a shtick, you know. Say like, it sometimes once, yeah. just letting people know. Yeah, let times let me know this is an appropriate time to cheer. You're not gonna miss anything. Uh, but like, if you seem pissed that no one is, then if you can like somehow uh, make a joke that kind of <laughs> brings the levity to the fact that like it's not a very live show or not a very well well attended show, that can be that can win them over because they'll be glad you came. Like so, sometimes. Like if I, this doesn't happen as much these days, but if it's not a well-attended show, I'll go. Thank you both for coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll and then I'll and then they'll laugh because you know it's ten people there and they're like, ha ha. I mean, I don't want to say names, but like when a rapper is like, you could tell they're mad that none of people care. It's like, well, then try something different. You know, like yeah. Do it. And why are you doing it? You're doing it because you love it and because that means that you're getting skills. So the next show, you'll be even better. You got to, it's like, we're talking about Baba Brinkman. It's like evolution. You got to let it make you a better performer. Otherwise just go, you know, go work for Facebook or something. Go do something that's like (laughs) dope, I guess, but not like being a full-time artist or whatever. Right. Right. (laughs) So let me ask you some more questions. Do you mind if I ask you some more questions? I would love it if you would. Where do you think as a huge fan of hip hop, where do you feel like it is? Where do you feel like it's going? And where do you see your, yourself in this changing, crazy world we live in? I'm going to turn 39 years old next month, you know? And, like, I've loved hip-hop my, to my best of my understanding and uh, for 30 years now, pretty much. And, like, it's changed over and over again in that time. You know, it's, it started one place. It spread all over. Um, it swept up so many things and it affected so many other things. Like it's so hard at this point to like pin down, like where's hip hop at? It's in like a lot of places. And some of what, some of what is hip hop right now, I still love some of what is hip hop right now makes no sense to me. Um, some of what is hip hop right now has the same problems that all the whole culture has had my whole life, you know? And like, so it's hard to like it's hard to like sum it up. I think every year that hip hop has existed, a ton of amazing hip hop has been created. And I want to always be looking for that and I always want to be able to find what's amazing even in the stuff that I 
I don't immediately appreciate. Because like over, over the many years, almost everything that I wound up loving the most, I started off hating, you know? Um, when I first heard uh, Wu-Tang Clan, I, like when I first heard um, like Cream and Chess Boxing, I was like, I don't understand these beats. Those make, no, that's not fun. Um, what, what specifically? Was it, they're too aggressive sounding or? It was like, it was like the, the dark, um, it wasn't immediately funky. Like there's, there's some funkiness on it, but like, you know, it was coming from the early nineties where like soul samples and funk, funky drums were like a king and they were taking hip hop into this really like dark, cold place. Um, and RZA wasn't always super concerned with whether his loops matched up perfectly. You know, it was Mm. like rough around the edges too. And like these weird little like piano phrases that he would play. And um, like I had to, I had to like seep into the, the mindset they were presenting, like really give it a careful listen, which fortunately they were blowing up. So I had many opportunities to give them another chance. Um, And like within a year, like by the time I was able to find a copy of the album, which you couldn't buy in Nova Scotia, um, I loved it. But, uh, but yeah, the first few singles, I couldn't figure out like why I would want to listen to that over like Souls of Mischief or uh, uh, Master Ace, whatever was hot at the time. And then, but like when I first heard uh, Company Flow also and like LP, I was like, this doesn't make sense as beats. Like a couple of these guys can rap, but like, what's going on here? And uh, and those like really like edgy, aggressive sounds. Like it took a while for me to sink into like where's the musicality in that, and uh, the um, even like freestyle fellowship. Like when I first heard them, you know, like um, AC Lone and Mike and I. Like now I look at them as the progenitors of style. Like they almost invented like rapping past a certain level of fluency. Um, but when I first heard them, it was too much for me to absorb. It wasn't like the types of rhythms I was ready for. Um, and so now, you know, now there's so much going on in different areas of hip hop that when I first hear something that, that I don't like, if it's for reasons other than content, which I'm always going to be like uptight about, uh, I want to know more about it. Like what, why is, why are people reacting to this positively that I'm not hearing? And then like, I'll learn something that makes me grow. And like even um, the most mainstream for the last few years, like the most mainstream, most popular rappers have had incredible flows. And like it's been such a weird thing because the 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 true school, like old head rap dad rip discourse has maintained like hip hop used to be smart. Hip hop used to be complex and it's just getting dumber and dumber. And you can't say that anymore. Right. Like the stuff that I grew up on that I love still was way simpler than any song by Migos, you know, like these triplet flows and like, so like Ray Schremer, they're creative constantly. And like, they say some bullshit, but like the way they say their bullshit is just as smart as anyone I've ever heard say any bullshit in my whole life. And, um, so like raps, like the production has kind of hit a rut maybe, but only in certain lanes, like, it's all there's I'm all, it's all I'm constantly open to magnificence from every angle of hip hop basically. Like I don't like sexism, but sexism's in every type of music and every type of entertainment. And uh, you know, I don't like homophobia and that's in every type of that's in everything. And rap's no exception. There's men who make rap and 
that's just gonna that's always gonna be a, a factor tainting it. But like, uh, there's also so much beautiful things happening in there. Always, I like that because I think that like being guys in our late thirties who who have really seen and been students of hip hop, um, you never want to be the guy saying rap sucks now. Remember Public Enemy? They were great. Yes, Public Enemy yeah. was great, but like rap to me has always been about. This the postmodern element of like circumlocution, which is like a great word. I like mm. to use. You speak around, right? Like you say yeah. things in a way that is different and special. And every new generation is reinventing it. And I think that's like the reason why people are salty is because sometimes it feels like there's this disproportionate amount of uh, press and attention and love given to something that people don't feel is like the most artistically creative genius thing and so especially people who are pr pr producers or rappers like you know there's this there's this tendency to be like well you know this stuff now is garbage soundcloud it's all unproduced horrible garbage but that is a yeah that is not like that that that's that's not the truth the truth is that there's great stuff you just have to find it yeah well then also like the the democratization of like music distribution has been a many bladed sword and like we all made stuff that sucked when we were starting out we just didn't have a way to make everybody listen to it like for the first few years right so like even you know if soundcloud is overwhelmed with stuff that's poorly mixed and like shows a teenager in the first few years of learning how to rap that's just because that's their bedroom tapes now and their bedroom is the whole world like it's not like people are starting out worse it's just they're getting heard sooner i think that that like can make the whole quality seem to lower and unfairly. And then that, and then it's like, in a way it's like punk rock and that, that aesthetic becomes like it trends, right? Like that distorted synthy mm -hmm. garbly stuff can trend and become popular. And yeah. that's just because it's the youth. And um, I always try to stay up on it, but yeah, I don't have patience for homophobia and sexism and like any of that. If soon as if, if I'm listening to an artist and I'm vibing and they, they drop something like that, I'm like, Oh, did, why did you have to ruin like, like, it's like, why did you have to slap me in the face for trying to be open to something? New? Yeah. No, it's like finding a rock in your ice cream, like, <laughs> or a bug. Like, it's hard to even finish the bowl after that. Like, it's got to be really good ice cream for me to, like, crunch through that bug and keep chewing. <laughs> that's a good. That's a very good metaphor. That's a better than my twisted sister Pee Wee Herman metaphor. What new flavor have you been enjoying? Like, can you, you're always putting me on to cool stuff, like... Name two two artists that I might not be aware of, or, or, or the listeners might not know that they should peep. Lakaley forty seven. Uh, How do you spell it? She's so dope. Well, it's really hard. L e i k e l i four seven. Okay. It's pronounced really different from how it looks. It looks like it should be like Lakaley, but it's Lakaley. I, I remember 47. seeing that I, seeing that name. She always wears like a like a balaclava. Um, that she makes herself or like a bandana with eye holes cut in it like a ski mask but she wears like these fashion ski masks Smooth. and has like perfect like glittery lipstick under it and stuff and like she just wraps her ass off uh what do you, what would Lars not know about well I I I've got your fingers everywhere I don't know man. about her now I now I'm gonna listen to her okay um what about uh what about rapper chicks you heard of rapper chicks no. Uh, it's uh, Psalm One, who used to be on Rhyme Sayers, and uh, Angelina, uh, who also used to be known as Angel Davenport, and they like have a group. They do solo stuff. They're super ill. Um, 
I want to think of something Canadian though. Also, like who who? Um... What about this new duo called Danger Grove? Ah, uh, yeah, Danger Grove. Not too bad. So what's up? Heard of? Yeah. Huh? So what's up with this fresh project that maybe we could be talking about? And what is Danger Grove? Rap legend Jesse Dangerously, whom you've heard of in great detail just now, and Lizard Grove, who's a little tiny producer from Loveland, Colorado, uh, who we met online. Uh, she remixed a couple of my songs and uh, sent them with like a note of apology, like, I hope it's okay. I remixed this song you put out the acapella for, and then it was dope. So we did a remix album together that you're on. On the Kang and Kodos remix, yeah, yeah, that remix came out great. And then, uh, and then we did a whole album together as part of the Nerdcore um, producer vocalist competition last year. Uh, like we just made a bunch of songs and we knew we were going to put them out. Wait, tell me about this competition. Well, every year, I think it's done because this year it didn't happen. But like for five years in a row, the Facebook, the like gnarly toxic Facebook group that uh, that concerns nerdcore um that has lots of lovely people on it and a few like real creeps um there was a, a competition where people would pair up and like one person's job would be straight up producer one person's job would be straight up vocalist and then there would be a series of challenges issued by the judges would you pick the pairs or would they be designated oh you like signed up in pairs tight, so tight, yeah it's like uh you team up and like it was cool because people would kind of like unlikely pairings would happen like people who had never worked before would or people who like were usually vocalists would be like i'll try producing yeah i i, I started and didn't finish it a couple years like the first two years i think i uh, I, I remember i i produced for tribe one uh, in the second or third year and um but we only did two songs and then we couldn't keep up with the the pace of doing literally anything um but last year at south by or yeah, the last time I went to South by, uh, Shabzilla was there, and she uh, impressed on me mightily. Like you've got to join the the producer vocalist competition this year, and because I knew she was doing it, and because I knew like a few other people who I really uh, respect their work and enjoy them as people were doing it, I was like, okay, I want to be in in this round. Um, but I didn't I didn't do anything unexpected because me and Liz already had a uh, a working relationship, so I was like. Liz, I think it's time we made some more songs. Let's let them tell us what they're going to be. Because uh, like having a starting point was always like a, a hard thing for us. So we signed up as a group. And at first there were 16 groups. And uh, we did really well in the competition. Uh, there was a lot of like really, really bad entries. But every round there was a few folks who like brought it. And I, like, I started hearing Lex, a lexicon artist who I'd never heard before. And her rhymes were always on point. And uh, <clears throat> Cloth and Pop and uh, Shubzilla were making amazing songs every time. And like Kadesh Flow, who I mainly knew of as a trombonist, because uh, I met him a few times at South By and like seen him wail on the horn and like just do this one dope song with uh, Megaran rapping. Um, uh, he kept like dropping in for one song and he like wasn't officially in the competition, but he would just drop a song and smoke everybody. And so it heated up over the course of it. And uh, by the end of it, like we'd won maybe one round outright, but we wound up winning the whole competition. So you just made songs or like an EP? Yeah. Yeah. So, the, sorry, there were song challenges uh, every three weeks. Um, a challenge would get posted and it would have like specific guidelines for 
um, for the producer and for the vocalist. Like, you can't use samples in this one, or you have to use a sample from this type of record, or uh, this one should be a children's song, or this one uh, should uh, incorporate a fandom. This is your pop hit, stuff like that. So essentially song fight. Yeah, yeah, basically a song fight with money. Yeah. Oh, so you got some squirrel from it. Yeah, well, uh, we didn't think we were going to win, but we knew if we won, like, that's what we're going to put out our record with. Um, and we did win, and we got the money, and we split it, and the money went away real fast. Um, and we had five songs at the end of the competition, and we were like, okay, this is our EP. And then we were like, well, maybe we'll want to just add this one other remix that we didn't put out before. And maybe, you know what, let's do a posse cut with the other people who, who rapped really dope on it. So it has a um, the Danger Grove album, which is called Want for Nothing, has this great posse cut called um num- that's number wang and it features kadesh flow and lexa lexicon artist and shubzilla and adam Celine and uh dash raps and plays trombone on it and uh, maybe i'll leak that to you to play on this or something this would be a good segue to it where so where do you what's the best place for fans to procure this flavor if they're not going to stream it on spotify i like for people to follow me on spotify and add me to their playlists and stuff but i want that on top of actually like it would be lovely to like buy merch um because we make these beautiful artifacts. I got this cartoonist, Megan Lands, who did the cover for the vinyl. For uh, Oh, you sent me the shirt. I love that uh, shirt. Yeah, yeah, she did that. Yeah, and uh, Dope. Yeah, and she, she did our first EP, and she's also done all the artwork for the new CD, LP, cassette. Uh, and we're, we're talking about a T-shirt right now. So, like, if people want to buy it on Bandcamp, that probably makes sense. If you're in Canada, order it from uh, Coke's Records, because that's my label. And I really want them to feel like they made a good a good decision putting this record out. Uh, that's the exciting thing. I've never put out like I've never put out an album with national distribution before, um, and it's it's strictly in Canada. So, but there's like physical distribution to stores. It's part of this, and I'm actually looking for a U.S. distributor. Uh, maybe I still will be when this comes out. Hit me up. <laughs> but uh, well, how can fools get a hold of you? Bandcamp, I guess. Dangerously.bandcamp.com or find me on uh, Instagram, Girl JD, or on uh, Twitter, RLJD. Danger Grove also has its own Twitter and Instagram at Danger Grove. Maybe that's easier to remember. Okay, and I've got one more question for you, non-related, but I thought you might have some insight on this. Cool. How do we get Adam Warrock out of retirement? This is like a real like, how do we raise Cthulhu type question? Like, do you really wanna do you really wanna unleash that on the world again? Like, we barely survived the first time. <laughs> I think he's gotta he's gotta want it, you know. Uh, I I don't get the sense that he like wants to rap right now. Maybe he has little flashes of wanting to rap, and that's when he like feverishly emails Michael Kill and is like, "Okay, here's an album you can produce for me," and Michael will make all the beats and then just not hear from him for a couple of years. But um, I mean, he's the homie, you just the homie. But I think he's you know he's doing what he wants to do. Like when he wanted to when he wanted to rap, he quit being a lawyer, and then when he didn't feel like that was working out for him, or like that was fulfilling his feelings. He got a different job and he stopped rapping. And like, I'm super happy for whatever he's doing that's like making him happy right now. I just wish he'd take me on tour again. You know, I don't need, <laughs> I don't need him to come out of retirement. Just like actually accompany me on tour and introduce me to people. The reason I bring that up is because so much of like we're talking about that Pee Wee Herman moment that I get to see my friends when we're on tour when they're performing. Like when we do showcase together, you you brought us all on for that Ottawa Comic Con, which was pretty mm. tight as heck a few years ago. And that when friends retire from doing rap or whatever, 
It's, you it's, lose him. You lose him. It's not. It's almost like he's he's. He, I haven't seen that fool in like five years, and um, that's okay because people change their perspectives. But I'm just wondering if you think there's any like uh, any efficient way to you know just maybe for selfish reasons bring our friends back in the mix who we don't see and you know maybe creating music together isn't isn't an excuse for why we should hang out but like doing this podcast was a great way for me to catch up with you you know what i mean yeah yeah um okay for 80s movies blues brothers that's how we get him back we hop in a car we drive to where he's working we show up and we go like we're getting the band back together and he goes can't you see i'm waiting all these tables i don't have time for that and we just harass him until he's ready to come play bass for us again. Because we're sick of waiting. Get it? <laughs> like, like Sage Francis? Sage Francis? Yeah. Sage Francis. Here's what you do, though. You get him on the show. That's how you're going to hang with him. Just be like, Eugene, can I talk to you? I tried to get him to do a verse like a year ago. Somebody's like, I'm not, I don't rap anymore. Yeah. And that's okay. That's fine. Because, you know, it's fine. It's like, uh, but... Yeah, I should have him on the podcast. Some people, those of you who don't know who Adam Warrock is, he's this guy who did a bunch of like pop culture raps a few years ago and uh, kind of blew up in the nerdcore scene and then ghosted as quick as he came in. And people, fools were like, what the? Because no one... Did he ever even really exist? Did I dream that? Everyone in nerdcore always keeps doing things long past anyone caring. And Eugene was like, <laughs> Eugene was like, it was like, he was like, people might not be caring as much as they did. Okay, I'm going to, I'm done. I'm done. And we're all like, that was brave as hell. And now he's like this legend in the genre, <laughs> which is fresh. But we resent it. We're like, come back and get yeah. old with come us. Come back and be miserable get, with us. Get, no, we're not miserable. <laughs> yeah, get him on the show because he might not rap anymore, but I bet he still talks. Last thing. What did you think about the whole Trebek, Alex Trebek Jeopardy thing? I was genuinely like incensed when he was mean to Susan on the show. Yeah. And like straight up, like, cause that was, I don't care that he like made fun of nerdcore. He like, I made a lot more fun of nerdcore than that. But like he had a person in front of him who was talking about something she loved with enthusiasm and he said something mean to her face. And that's like classic bullying. And I bet like, I've heard that he's kind of a bully, you know, and like the, you know, it all who has all the answers handed to him. And like, I um I love watching I've always watched Jeopardy so like I don't know it was just it was it was sad it was a sad moment and I liked that I liked that we made a song that kind of circled around her and was like hey lay off man yeah. like and we you know we phrased it in a funny way and we were like over the top like antagonistic and you know he's just some guy um he didn't do the cruelest thing ever and he uh he's not going to like regret it for the rest of his life but just like taking a moment to be like, don't be mean to her. <laughs> like, yeah, you have the power in this situation and she's a nice person and she's smart. And like, or even if she weren't smart, that's not even a virtue. But like, you know, just be nice. Be nice about it. That wasn't cute. That's what I liked about it. I wonder if you felt like the video and stuff and everyone's reaction was a like a. I wondered if it was like a cheap re way for us to try to be like, hey, we still exist. Look at us. Hey, <laughs> no, well, of course we are. But like. <laughs> We are trying to get attention like that's we're professional attention getters, you know, like we and we we're attention vampires like we live off it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with like taking a moment, and, like showing up for it. I don't think it was exploitative. Like I know like Raheem got to meet her and like, we, yeah, we all did. She came to our show. Oh, yeah. OK. I only saw a picture of him or I only remembered that. But yeah, I haven't met her. Uh, but I uh, 
I don't know. Like, I liked the moment because it brought different generations of nerdcore together, of like people mm-hmm. who were in the scene, and um, and like people who didn't really have similar styles. Um, but everybody was kind of like, it's, and maybe people were there for different reasons. But like, I felt like the general vibe was like, yeah, let's be like, let's promote being nicer <laughs> in this instance. You know, Howard Stern still uses that as like a bumper just between his his segments. <laughs> Her talking to Alex Trebek and his reaction. Well, Howard Stern <laughs> is a classically unkind person, as far as I'm aware. I don't think he's got a, a nice bone in his body. Kindness was the theme of that. And when you put it like that, it makes me, I agree with you. It's like uh, the the main point of that collaboration was like, hey, everyone, be nice. And it was cool. We were all in the, we all made a video for it. Like, that was fresh. You know what it was like? It was like at the end of every Sailor Moon movie. Where like over the course of the movie, maybe some of her friends have been like taken out by baddies. They sacrifice themselves, but then she just makes herself like drags herself to the finish line, ragged. She's got to defeat the big evil, and then all of her friends show up like just either they're ghosts or they actually make it there, and they're like, "We believe in you." And then she shoots the giant moonbeam that destroys the negaverse or whatever. And like that, was, we were we were all the Care Bears staring in that moment, you know. <laughs> And uh, then Twisted Sister and Pee Wee Herman crashed into each other as well. <laughs> no, I'm playing. Yeah, yeah. Jesse, you, you are a great friend and a great artist, and I appreciate your time. And thank you for being on the show, dog. You're an incredible sweetheart, and I'm so nice to see your face. And thank you for letting me ramble and get confused. And still we're friends for life. So For life! Jesse, Yo. tell them about your Patreon real quick before we're out of here. I got a Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash rljd. And every month I put out a new song and the whole world can have it. But if you join the Patreon for even one dollar, then you're helping me put it out. If you join the Patreon for three dollars, you get to hear it before anybody. And if you join the Patreon for five dollars, I send you everything that I ever put out physically as soon as it's in my hands. And actually, you're all about to get the the Danger Grove uh, CD uh, who are already subscribed. And if you subscribe for fifteen dollars, which is ridiculous, I send you a uh, 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 Lathe cut vinyl seven inch of two songs every two months. Are you serious? Yeah. It's weird. Eh? It's like picture disc. It's beautiful. Wait, wait. Every two months you send them. I send them the two, the last two months, like singles on a, on a seven inch. How, wait, how many seven inches do you print? Around 10 these days. Like uh, it's been gone up and down. So you can do limited run like that. Yeah. Cause they're lathe cut. So they're actually cut in real time. That's dope. They're beautiful too. That's yeah, dope. if not, if for no other reason, head to my Patreon and take a look at the pictures of so it. So worth it. Uh, and yeah. Oh, and for a thousand dollars, for a thousand dollars a month, uh, you can. I'll block you on everything. If if you sign up for my Patreon for a thousand dollars, I'll block you on Facebook, uh, and what else? Uh, Twitter, every anything you got, I'll uh, I'll like delete your phone number out of my phone. You'll never hear from me again. You'll never know. What, wait, that's a thousand dollar level. Wait, what's the what? Just because it's funny, <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> that's very creative. Thank you. I Jesse, I, I I backed you at that, but then I stopped hearing from you, so I had to rescind my bid. <laughs> no, <laughs> I had to take out a, a bank loan to pay you back. <laughs> I spent it all right away. Will you be a South by or nah? I'll do it this year for sure. Also, I'm gonna get Adam Warrock out of retirement, and we'll tour down to wherever you are. I'll be tight. Congratulations on getting married. It's beautiful. You and Ash. That's lovely. Thanks, Jesse. I think you were probably at the show where I met her. Oh, my God. At South, South By? At 2015, we met. Yeah. 
Handjob Academy played. And I met her. I hadn't, I'd never met her. So now we're married. Well, I'm taking full credit then. <laughs> I have you to thank. Um, friends for life, dog. Friends for life, homie. Jesse Dangerously, thank you. So we're going to end with this is the posse cut from uh, Danger Grove. What's it called again? Tell them to set it up. That's, it's called That's Number Wang, featuring Kadesh Flow, Lexa Lexicon artist, Shubzilla, and Adam Celine, produced by Liz Grove. What's the title from? Uh, it's from that Mitchell and Webb look. It's a British comedy show because I'm a nerd. Jesse, thank you, G. Peace. Dash. I don't just rap now, I make money moves. Got to cause my bank account has me uncomfortable. You don't know what being broke does to you, especially when you with the people who with the people who got grabbing looks and stars at the mob for tools. Y'all took a server who's popping, talking but you don't use noggins. Doors be opening for me, I look back and I see jealous who's knocking. You said you're trying to flex, but you're locked out like you need a new login. Encrypt the key is a no-go. This is all hard work, that is what you need to know though. Y'all too busy trying to get faded like Chicha Coco. Realize that they go Johnny Cage with low blows. You don't have a product and you play no dope shows. Meanwhile, they be singing all the words, I wrote those. What kind of forever got my arms and bones crossed? I will outwrap all you MCs viciously, then I'll turn around and let that trombone talk. You told me to stunt and flex, but do I really have to tell you I ain't never wanna fuck with Lex? What up the step? I'm headed to the peak of my game. I got enough respect to put a reset of shame. And then came the time for me to write an unfocused brag rap, which recently has gotten a bad rap. But how could I decline a chance to emasculate the crap out of rappers like Furiosa and Mad Max? My lyrics are injurious, I hit like a backstab. I'm fickle a little bit, I'll protect the back out. Delivery filthy out that are shitting your ass crack. And if you're unprotected, it could give it the clap back. That's bad. Calculating your root values are radical damage, and that's the non rappers that happen to stand in my path. It's a kind of spit fast. The answer is affinity. Profit six double oh nine one type Peter to a little more and kiss the sky. Scouts and misheard. Too bad I'm all out of spoons, only came with nine. Predatory battle level over nine. How's the rapper with the difference between this is a mess? It dances of elevators, thumb from all heights and all depths compared to the shallowest of your breast. Now I'm floating in spaces left. Sort of softly with weighted breasts. No angel of mercy, I'm more of an angler. Fish. Fuck your respect, it came for your neck. Feel better when you puff your chest though. Real funny, but I swear not good, bro. The world you think of the damn dumb for dirt sake. The stomp on it, they would have buried the footnotes. I did not come to lose, I did not come cute I did not come to tell you what I'm not gonna do But I did not come to not run enough of the loot I pocket the jewels and I back up with you hot in pursuit Hop in the group, I can't drive, that was not a good move I can't decide to act like you're my fan size Damn, I hit the stage of a side And now I got a fantasize Man, I got fans on my fan side Trophies on my mantle, gold on my enamel Even when I panhandle my can metal to hit the league Cops understandably ranting me off It's a hostage to my family It's not vanity, goddammit I'd box box with Sean Hannity You knock his obnoxious blocks off for humanity He's straight A's, he's damning me in the face
Yo, I'm sorry. That was fresh. That was too fresh. Please get the new Danger Grove album. It's called Want for Nothing, and uh, it's awesome, and it's very eclectic and well-produced and super cool, and uh, great talking to you, Jesse. Next week, I have a pretty famous editor, this guy, Eamon Dolan, who edited some books you probably heard of, Fast Food Nation, The God Delusion, amongst others. And Eamon Dolan sat and talked to me about like the function of story and narrative and how a book is a, is a life-changing thing that will never go away. And I agree. And also, Eamon's kind of an eclectic, interesting dude. So that was awesome, talking to him. So check that out. I'm MC Lars. Please comment, leave a review if you liked it. Please tell a friend. And thank you all for your support. See you next week. Peace. Have a good one.